Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, January 21st, day 107 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel-Dan here with our culture editor, Jessica Steinberg, also my Daily Briefing co-host. Hi, Jessica. Hey there, Amanda. Anti-government protests have restarted in earnest, including in Jerusalem. Jessica will fill us in on the rally last night in the capital. The saddest birthday in the world was marked last week as hostage Kfir Bibas turned one. There are special events and Jessica will fill us in. And we'll hear about more artistic endeavors aimed at raising the awareness of the almost 140 still held hostage by Hamas. All this and much more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. First, some headlines. Israeli security forces have killed just 20 to 30 percent of Hamas's terrorists in the Gaza Strip, according to a Wall Street Journal report. As of this morning, 195 IDF troops have fallen in the ground invasion in Gaza. The IDF released a video showing the inside of a tunnel in southern Gaza's Khan Yunus, where Israeli hostages were held by Hamas. The military says the tunnel is approximately half a mile long and was dug 20 meters or 66 feet below the ground. There was a central space as well as five barred cells. Thousands of demonstrators held simultaneous rallies in Tel Aviv, Caesarea, and Jerusalem on Saturday evening to pressure the government to do more to immediately release the more than 130 hostages, almost 140, back to Israel. At the same time, there were rallies in the cities against the Netanyahu government itself, each with its own flavor. Jessica, you covered last night's Jerusalem rally, which was, I believe, the first since Hamas started the war on October 7th. What did you see? Right. So actually, I look back on the WhatsApp group that I'm on of Safeguarding Our Shared Home, which is the group that started the anti-judicial overhaul rallies a year ago. And it seems to have been the second or third week that they were gathering outside the president's residence to call for elections. Um, and what they do is they first have a very short rally protest calling for elections, and then everyone marches to Paris Square, which is, you know, the, sort of the start of downtown Jerusalem, where it's a march for the hostages. And they're trying to, and this is all organized by Safeguarding Our Home, the this an, originally anti-overhaul protest group. And they're basically bringing both of those messages to the fore. Um, we were... 
I would say between five and six hundred people who gather there. Not a big crowd. Uh, it's people said to me that it's grown in the last couple of weeks. And the message was very clear. There were two speakers, and I noticed this on the other WhatsApp groups that I'm on for Kesaria, for for Krasaba, for Nesiona, um, that they have this first protest calling for elections, and then it sort of segues into calling for a deal for the hostages. And what happens in the protest? Because again, there's this very mixed feeling of, should we be doing this during a war? What is that message? What does it mean? So the first speaker was a bereaved mother. Um, her name is Sigalit Chernochovsky. Her son, Or Chernochovsky, was killed at the Supernova Desert Rave on October 7th. She spoke about him. It was hard. She was tearful at times. She was strong. She said... She is mourning her son, who was a fourth-year electrical engineering student at Ben Gurion University, and she said, and yet in her mourning, she is very much calling for a change in the government, for a different direction. And she segued into the second and final speaker, a person named Avner Vilan, who was identified as a former Defense Ministry official, youngish guy. I met him probably in his late thirties. Uh, and he's now the CEO of a startup, he told me. And his message was very, very clear. He told the crowd, I know it feels unnatural to protest during a war. It feels unnatural to protest when there are soldiers on the borders, when there are hostages still held captive in Gaza, when there are evacuees, 200,000 of them from the north and from the south, not in their homes and not able to go back home yet. And he said, and this is true, he said, People told you probably that it's not really right to come to a protest right now. And it's interesting, Amanda, because in my own life, and I went to these anti-judicial overhaul protests for a year, uh, the people that are friends of mine who usually would come with us said to me, mm, I'm not going to come tonight. I just don't feel right about it. They felt mixed. You know, very often right now, uh, the decision to protest against the government and to call for new elections feels, or to say that we are, to call for a deal for the hostages feels like a, that it is a negative intent toward the soldiers who are in Gaza. It seems to be this, this uh, equation. That's how people see it. They see it as either you're for the soldiers or you're for the hostages. And it's an argument that I think everyone's having over their Friday night dinner tables and at the water cooler. You know, it goes on everywhere right now. And that was what this speaker was saying. He was saying, yes, it might feel that it doesn't feel right. But the problem is, he said, no one really knows when this war is going to be over. And he said the government is running the war as if it's a TikTok story. How can the IDF win if they have no idea what the plan is for after the war? And basically, he said, our demand is simple, set a date for elections now. And that was sort of the terminology that he used. And that really drew the crowd's attention. This was not a crowd that was banging on drums, that was blowing on horns. They clapped. They yelled, Akshav, now, when he said, let's set a date for elections. Let's get the, back the mandate for this nation. And that's another message that you've been hearing a lot in recent weeks, that Israel, in a sense, the nation of Israel has lost its way. It doesn't feel like the same nation that it was. And let's get that back on tap. 
That's really fascinating. And I'm sure the profile of the protesters in Jerusalem was slightly different than the protests that you've seen in Tel Aviv, because Jerusalemites are, of course, different than Tel Avivans. And further, the hostage families, many of them come from these Otef Aza, the Gaza envelope communities, and are from Kibbutzim, which uh, generally trend very left. And so what was the crowd in Jerusalem? Was it a uh, right-leaning, such as the polling of Jerusalem generally tends to be, or was it more of a mix? It's really a mix. Uh, it's always interesting, and it was like that throughout the judicial overhauls. You felt like you were meeting all of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, surprisingly, is a big mix of people. There are definitely kippah wearers. There are definitely women who have their hair covered. There are also plenty of secular Jerusalemites. Draw, you know, This is at the president's residence, which is in Rechavia, which is a primarily or has always been a more secular neighborhood, which also has a more um, very traditional younger population as well. You don't necessarily see the younger religious people. Um, you definitely see, you know, uh, lecturers from Hebrew University, and you see a lot of academics, and you see people who are left-leaning religious types. It's just a mix. And I would see people that I knew from the gym or that I know from the supermarket. I would see literally all of Jerusalem showing up. And that was what I felt like last night, but just in much smaller numbers. Because the big anti-judicial overhaul protests in Jerusalem of a year ago got to uh, 10 and 20,000 on some Saturday nights. This was obviously much, much smaller. Um, and the same thing for the march. You know, the crowd peters out as it moves into the second phase of this of this hostage protest. It's not that people are not looking to support the hostage families. There are fewer hostage families in Jerusalem. There's basically just a few. And in Tel Aviv, the big hostage protest is much larger because all the major families who are either families of hostages or those who are supporting the hostages, that's where the main event takes place. And Last night, for instance, there were buses that went from Jerusalem right after Shabbat to Tel Aviv, as there have been for about six or seven weeks. And those buses are full. There's, you know, several hundred people going from Jerusalem to support the families of the hostages in Tel Aviv on, an, on, on a weekly basis. Okay, thanks for that. We'll go to short break. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. 
And we are back. Now, as anyone who has read the Times of Israel knows, you have been heading up our coverage of the hostages and their families. And on Thursday, January 18th, the saddest birthday in the world was marked as redheaded Kfir Bibas turned one while being held captive in Gaza. There were several events marking this day really throughout the world, but Prior to the birthday, you spoke with a cousin of the Bebas family, Jimmy Miller. What did he have to say? Right. So Jimmy Miller was a very familiar face and, and voice to me because he has uh, joined, in a sense, the organizers, the people who are on stage at every single rally that's taken place for weeks, months now. He's a first cousin to Shiri Bibas, to Kfir and Ariel's mom. Uh, his mother is Shiri Bibas's mother. Her parents were killed in Near Oz on October 7th. Jimmy Miller's mother is a sister to Shiri Bibas's Bibas, mother. So, you know, they've obviously grown up together. He lives in Tel Aviv. Shiri and her husband Yarden and the two kids have been living in Near Oz. And he is one of the people who leads the cheers, leads the shouts, leads the achshav now, bring them home now. Uh, he and another cousin of theirs, um, whose name is Yossi Schneider, who's also a first cousin. And they've been the face, in a sense, for the Bibas family, even though there are many other family members who are taking part in the protests, just because they're, as he said to me, I, I'm, I'm okay doing it. I have the voice. I have the energy. Shiri Bibas's sister is not necessarily at the forefront. Um, and Yarden Bibas, uh, Shiri's husband, he has a sister who's also been very much at the front going with other hostage families to Europe, to the States, to fight their cause. She also comes on stage sometimes. But Jimmy was the one who really spoke to me about their family a little bit, explained some of the family connections so I could understand who's a cousin and who's a first cousin. Um, he he was, of course, there. Uh, he was on stage for the 100-day rally that was last Saturday night through Sunday, a 24-hour rally to mark 100 days for the hostages. And he was again um, at Hostages Square in Tel Aviv, on the birthday, on January 18th, when Kibbutz Near Oz organized major Israeli children's entertainers to come and to mark the birthday in what they are calling the saddest birthday in the world. What did he say to me? He said, we're like robots right now. That was one of the quotes um, that I had in the story. He said, you know, we're doing whatever we can to move things forward. We've talked to everyone in the world. We've talked to major players, politicians and actors and entertainers and activists. And he said, and everyone listens with a great empathy and they look at you and they're, they're listening to what you say. And then they go have a cup of coffee because they can. And he, of course, as one of the family members, they don't feel like they can. Um, they don't really know. You know, there were a lot of uh, rumors that were being spread as part of the Hamas propaganda. This is weeks back that the Bibases were killed, that the Bibases were being held by another Palestinian terror group. Um, there has not been any other kind of news about the Bibases in weeks from the IDF or from the government. Um, when I asked him about it, he said, we really don't know. And as 
it's hard to know sometimes. You know, sometimes they, they tell you things and sometimes hostage families really don't. They, there's a real mix of what they will say. And there's also a very, sometimes there's a very big difference in what they will tell Israeli Hebrew media and they what they will tell English language media like ourselves, like the Times of Israel. Um, and sometimes I just don't know uh, what they're going to be telling me and what I'm going to be hearing from them. But they, but they spoke about the fact these two cousins, uh, Jimmy and uh, Yassi, and Yassi lives in Cholon, right outside of Tel Aviv. Who, again, they're both very active in whatever events are being put together and helping put the, together those events. Their feeling is like so many hostage families that they're going to keep on working on this and doing whatever they can and shouting and not working. They basically do this as a full-time job right now, uh, doing whatever they can until they know something, because that's always the sense of hostage families. Until you know, you don't know. And as long as you don't know, you're going to keep on pushing because there's always that possibility, that hope that you will get your loved ones home. And that, of course, is ultimately what they want. Um, right now, hostage families like the buses are extremely angry at the government. They feel that there are deals that could be made through Qatar and Egypt as the mediators, and that the Israeli government, that the uh, Netanyahu, the prime minister, is not taking advantage of those deals, that the army is leading the charge here, that the IDF is leading the charge, and that any acceptance of a deal will just play very badly for Israel down the line. And that is a very difficult feeling uh, to, to have about your government and to have about how your government is thinking about your loved ones. There are some who are protesting with a microphone and a megaphone, and there are others who are protesting with their pen and palette. And that's the case, of course, for noted cartoonist and illustrator Zev Engelmeyer, who has drawn hostages, soldiers, and mourners for his daily postcards since October 7th. Now, you noted that in, in your story that initially, for the first two weeks following October 7th, he only drew in black and white. And I could really identify with that. What else did he tell you? So he's a Zev Engelmeyer, who's often known by a lot of Israelis as Shoshka for this um, this other persona that he has of this very blousy blonde woman who is his sort of activist persona. And he has wigs and crazy costumes that he makes up, literally like almost like a full float. And he will go out to rallies and to protests, especially in the last year of the anti-judicial overhaul protests, he would go out as Shoshka. And then he took a made many steps back after on October 7th and since then to draw these daily postcards. And he's a he's a very quirky guy. He's he's funny and he's cynical and does a lot of satire. So for him to have this public persona put aside and to go forward with black and white and then these daily postcards is a huge step for him. It's it's a real turn, a real pivot in a sense, like so many people. And he said to me that basically he felt very emotionally attached. He feels extremely emotionally attached to the hostages and to their families. And so so much so that he would get in, he would post these postcards on Instagram and then get messages from families, from families of soldiers, from mourning families, bereaved families, from all kinds of people. And he would respond to them and say, sure, I will 
draw a picture of your beloved son who was killed or of your uh, beloved grandchild who is held hostage in Gaza or really almost any situation that you can think of, he has drawn. He has a long list. He can get 200 messages a day and he tries very hard to respond to every single one of them. And then if he does draw a daily postcard of that person's loved one, he will first call them, sometimes meet them in person, hear about them, hear who they are, and hear all the various descriptions, and then go home, draw that postcard, and then have it scanned and printed. Uh, He posted on Instagram, of course, but he will also give a copy to the family because he wants them to have a physical piece, uh, you know, physical piece of art of this person, of this loved one that they are missing or that they are worried about or that they are, you know, all the various emotions that are out there right now. Jessica, describe his palette a little bit because he is, as you said, a colorful character, but also his art itself is extremely colorful. Yes? Yeah. So what happened was, as you mentioned, he drew in black and white for the first two weeks because like all of us, he just felt, he felt black and white. He felt monochrome. He felt sad and depressed and had that fist in his stomach like so many of us. Um, He then turned to color eventually. It sort of happened, he said, very naturally. And now what he does, and the story has has examples of his postcards, they are extremely colorful. They're basically drawn with magic markers, with markers, right? Uh, turquoise and reds and pinks. Uh, he draws hope in a sense. I mean, he drew, he gained a lot of hope from that end of November release of 100 hostages, 100 plus hostages. And that those, that release allowed him to really dive into his colors, into his colorful palette. But even when he is drawing people who were killed, he draws the, 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 the pictures of them from his own brain, own mind and his their family's descriptions of them that were moments of hope and peace and happiness. You know, I'm thinking of these three kids who were fishing on Zikim Beach, these three 17-year-old teenagers who were killed by Hamas terrorists on October 17th. They'd gone out early in the morning to go fishing. They were killed. But how did he draw them? As sitting on a sliver of a moon with their fishing poles and hands and smiles on their faces. And he said he's never gotten a complaint by any family over how he has depicted their loved ones. Even if it's been in in the depths of their mourning and he's drawing something hopeful and happier, they're very, very happy to get it. And he always warns them. He says, you know, I'm not much of an artist. I'm a caricaturist. I'm an illustrator. I don't draw people looking beautiful and lovely. I draw them as kind of quirky people, as kind of quirky figures. I might point out the hair on their legs or what their hair looks on their heads. Um, And he said people never complain about how their loved one is depicted in the end product. They're always just very grateful to have this piece of art uh, that is drawn with clearly a full heart and a full mind by Zev Engelmeyer as this daily postcard proj- project that he's that is ongoing that he doesn't see an end to anytime in the near, near future. And what I wanted to add is that what's interesting is that he his stuff is post is now being exhibited everywhere in real museum exhibits like in the Herzliya Museum and in Berlin and in Mexico City and in a couple of other museums here in Israel, but also 
as a kind of outdoor exhibit in Yafo and Jaffa and in schools. And really anyone who asks him, he gives it to them because he wants to be able to share this kind of outlook to people because it you look at it and even though you know you're looking at something sad, it does make you feel a little better. At least that's how it felt for me and that's how it feels for a lot of other people. And who doesn't need that right now? Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been good to talk to you, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Pod Waves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Shalom.